Thanks. You may be seated. Wow, that's uh, that's quite overwhelming. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, hi, how's everybody doing? Man, it's Wednesday night. I felt the presence of Jesus in worship. Man, I tell you, I just felt the Holy Spirit fill this place and felt the kiss. You ever been trapped between heaven and earth and caught in the middle of a sloppy, wet kiss? That's what it felt like, man. Like Jesus just kissed it, man. It was just perfect, man. Just love it when you get caught in the presence of God like that. Let me say thank you to your pastors. Uh, pastors Philip and Destiny Deeds are some of my favorite people on the planet. How about you? You can do better than that. Come on, North Point. Yeah, thanks, Pastor Philip. What an, what an honor and a privilege it is to be in your house tonight and uh, what a great honor it is that you offered me the opportunity to, to preach, and i um, very humbled by that. And Pastor Destiny, I know you're, you're uh, just such a great preacher. It's always intimidating to preach in front of great preachers, you know? You know, sometimes you feel like a, a hot dog at a steakhouse. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. That's what I truly like to be. Uh, I heard Pastor Destiny preach at a district council. I don't know if you were there, man. She knocked it out of the park. I wanted to get saved that night at the altar call. I thought I was trying to think of something to repent for because I want to go to the altar. I'm like, I got to get right with Jesus, man. Pastor Destiny, that was a word from God. So, so due for our state and for our movement. It was just, uh, man, thank God that we have women preachers in our movement, right? Man. Those, those ladies are some of the best preachers in America, man. I feel sorry for all the other guys who are too closed-minded to let women preach. Bam! Um, I'm going home, so you can get mad at me. I don't care. <laughs> Pastor Destiny killed it, right? It was so good, so good. It's good to be at Northport tonight. What a great, great privilege is to worship with you. I'll tell you what, we just uh, feel like that we are sister churches, you know, uh, Pastor uh, Philip and Pastor Destiny came down for staff retreat in 2016 and uh, invested three days into our staff. And uh, uh, Pastor Philip, honestly, probably one of the best staff retreats we've ever had, man. Absolutely transformation. We still quote you at staff meeting to this day. We still quote you. Well, maybe we're quoting Destiny more than you, but we're still quoting one of you. I'm not sure who got the credit for it, but we're still quoting you. And we totally uh, stole your, uh, your 12 house habits. I want you to know right now, I'm going to confess it before God and the church. We stole it, locked, stock, and barrel, printed it, put our name on it, and did not give you credit for it. I told them that I thought of it. Moses had the Ten Commandments. I got the 12 house habits. He got his from, his from God, I got mine from Philip. So, not quite as good a source as Moses, but, you know, take what you can get, man. Uh, it's been transformational. We, we love the house habits, and, man, we've just adopted that, and they really became culture definers for us, and we appreciate you sending your pastor to sow into us, your pastors to sow into us. Thank you so much. Well, my name is Doug McAllister. Uh, I had the great privilege to be married to a beautiful woman named Rachel. We have been married for 30 Five years. Yeah. Check this out. All in a row. All 35 of them in a row, man. We haven't broken the string yet, man. We have five kids. Uh, oldest is 31. Our youngest is 15. 
Uh, he's a freshman in high school, and our oldest son's married five years and just gave us our first granddaughter. I am a grandfather. Thank you. Yes. You know, uh, it may be the greatest feeling that I've ever had in my life when they put that little baby in my arms for the first time. I don't know, man, what it is about having grandchildren. I, really, I always used to make fun of granddads. Some of my friends are grandfathers, and I think, yeah, you're ridiculous. Please stop showing me your pictures of your grandchild. And now my phone has 10,000 pictures of the same little person. You know, I'm like, that's kind of ridiculous, but now I get it. It's ridiculous, you know. And love every minute. Her name is Haley Grace, and uh, I'm Haley Grace's granddad. And what a great privilege. I am tearing up over that. That's silly. That is kind of sad. Uh, I love that little girl. She is amazing. Uh, been married to Rachel, five kids, one grandchild. We started our church in 1996, Rachel and I, our three kids, and she was pregnant with our fourth. That's a great way to plan a church. Quit your job, move to a different city, have your wife pregnant, and not have a job. That sounds like God's design, right? That's Obviously, God is in there, right? Yeah. We started with 17 people in 1996, grew the church to over 1,000 in the first 10 years. Hurricane Katrina came along and wiped us off the face of the earth. We didn't have enough sense to move, so we started all over. The next Sunday, we started over with about 40 people. And for the last 10 years, we've been rebuilding the same church. So I think the Lord was telling me that I didn't do it right the first 10 years. So he erased the board and said, now, here's your do-over, boy. Can you get it right this time? So we've been, we're into our second decade uh, of this church. And I'll tell you why, it is the greatest, uh, greatest privilege of my life. Because it's, it's not my job, it's our ministry. Our family planted that church. We, we risked everything, literally everything. You know, there was no church planning funds. There was no strategies back then. We just used all of our own retirement. We got rid of our possessions. We moved out of our house, and we moved to a different city. And we just, for two years, put everything we owned into planning this church. And I'll tell you, um, many nights I went to bed thinking, I don't know if this is going to work. You ever felt like that? You try and try and try, and you think, well, this may not work after all. I may need to hone my skills. You know, I may need to renew my, uh, my class E driver's license pretty soon. Uh, but you know what? When you go all in for the call of God, are you all in for the call of God? All in. I want to preach a sermon tonight called All In. Would you say it with me? All in. Come on, say it like you mean it. All in. Let me ask you this question tonight as we begin this sermon. Did you know that there is a call of God on your life. Let me let that sink into your spirit. Did you know that there is a call of God on your life? I heard this saying many years ago. I wrote it down, and it's been so long, Pastor Philip, that I forgot who said it. So again, I've stolen this quote as my own. Seemed to be you know, some of my best thinking is done by other people. God gave your eyes so that you can plagiarize. It's not in the Bible, but you know what I'm saying, right? The two most important days in a person's life. The two most important days in a person's life. Number one. The day that you're born. 
Number two, the day you discover why. You know, tragically, most people will live their life and never find the answer to number two. But I am certain tonight that every person is born with a destiny. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every person that's born again has a call of God on their life. If you're born again, I guarantee you that God has called you and equipped you and sent you to do his purposes on the earth. And you may spend the rest of your life trying to unravel the mystery of the call to find the answer to the question, why? The day that you discover why. I was born in, on October 4th of 1962. That sounds like a really long time ago. I was born when Andy Griffith was still a current television series on TV. You know, you're thinking, who is Andy Griffith, right? How about this? Gilligan's Island was still on television as a first-run series. The Flintstones, that's a long time ago. I think I'll probably qualify as one of the Flintstones. I was born in a little farm town. My dad was a strawberry farmer. In the town of Amit City, it was a little farm, um, dairy and strawberry farm town. The little hospital was not really a hospital. It was a three-room clinic where my mom gave birth to me on the Thursday night, October 4th of 1962. And my dad was not allowed to be in the birthing room. This was 1962. He was across the street in Amit at the parish fair. He often told me the story the night I was born. He said, I was stuck on top of the Ferris wheel. I didn't even know that you were in the world until I got back from the Ferris wheel. He came back and immediately heard the news and decided to have a cigar. Told me that story a thousand times. That's the day I was born. The day I found out why was January 1st, 1979. I'd been saved about six months. I was sitting on the, on the bed in my little bedroom where we lived in a little tiny farmhouse. And I was holding a Bible that somebody had given me at church. I'd gotten saved kind of accidentally. How many of you know that there's never any accidents in the kingdom of God? It was through a series of just accidents that I found Christ. I was the first person in my family to get saved. Didn't have a Bible in our house. An old lady in our church gave me a Bible. And it was a, a dog-eared leather study Bible that I had a hard time reading because it was in the original King James, you know, the one that Jesus used. You know what I'm talking about? The original Bible. I had a hard time reading. I had a hard time understanding it, but I was sitting there reading my Bible on the edge of the bed. I remember distinctly because I heard the voice of God. And I can count on one hand how many times I've heard the voice of God. Some of my friends hear from God every 30 minutes. I'm thinking, wow, you must have a direct line to Jesus. I've been following him for 40 years, and I've had like four or five times where I know that I know that I know that he spoke to me. I've had many impressions and, and Holy Spirit inspirations and, and revelations, but only a couple times did I hear his voice when he told me to do something. 
And one of them was on January 1st, 1979. I was sitting there, and the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. This is what he said, I want you to preach the gospel. I immediately said yes. That's the night I discovered my destiny. Now, it only took me the next 14 years to actually get into ministry. At least I thought it took that long. But actually, it happened that very night. It just took me 14 years to turn it into an occupation. But I was in ministry from that moment on. You know, a little sidebar here, I was born with a speech impediment. I was in speech class for, you know, most of my high, uh, elementary and junior high and high school years. Had a, a stutter, and the, the, the specialist told my mom that I would never, uh, never overcome it because it was, uh, you know, it was a birth defect. Basically, my, the speech center of my brain did not fully develop, and there was nothing they could do but other than maybe lessen some of the, the stutter. And ironically, God called me to preach, and I said yes. I didn't really say yes, Pastor Philip. I said y- 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 yes. I'm sure the Lord smiled that night. Like, that's good, Doug. You're gonna do. You're gonna do great things. Y- y- yes, Lord. Within six months, a birth defect that the doctor said that I would never recover from. The speech classes that I attended every day. And boy, I'll tell you, I remember in third grade in particular, they sent a a specialist out to the public school where I was attending and they would drive up in a little green van and all the special needs kids, and boy, nothing like your self-esteem getting boosted than being called out to the special needs van. I dreaded to see the van pull up in the parking lot because the teacher would say, okay, Doug, the specialist is here to see you. I felt like I was doing the perp walk, you know, I was going to jail. Walk across in front of all the kids like, hi, I'm an idiot. I'm going out to the special bus. I'd go out there and they would teach me, you know, wonderful things that I would add to my uh, repertoire, but none of them brought healing or closure. I'd always leave feeling a little bit less of a human than I before I went in. But then I met Jesus. And humans do their best. And I had some amazing teachers. Mrs. Thompson in the third grade is one of my favorite persons in the whole world. And she used to cry because I couldn't talk. She had such compassion. And she wanted with everything in her to fix me. So did my mom. 16 years later, why does the Lord sometimes wait 16 years, Pastor Philip? What he can do in a moment, sometimes he makes you wait 16 years. I'm walking home from church several months later, still with the call of God on my life, still stuttering. I'm walking home, and I felt this sensation in my, in my chest. It was like somebody turned on, you know, an uh, uh, electric blanket. My chest got very warm, and I felt it going up to my throat. I'm like, man, I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was having a, I didn't know what was going on. I just felt this sensation going up all the way up to my neck and then through my, to the top of my head, and then it left. Didn't occur to me that God was, I got home, and my mom asked me a question, and I answered her without stuttering. She said, what did you say? I said, I didn't stutter, woman. Did you hear me? 
Not even really say that. <laughs> but it'd been a good time for that line had I thought of it, right? Do you think I stutter? From that day on, I've never stuttered again. The call of God, if you will go all in, will change your life. I want to teach you tonight from 1 Kings chapter 19. There's four verses here that we're going to look at. And I want to extract from this story four principles about the call of God. Remember, every born-again believer has a call of God on their life. You will have to devote your life to the call before he'll explain it all to you. I want to read you these four verses, and then each verse, I want us to mine a principle that you can apply to the call of God in your life. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. This is the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the prophet. Elisha is his servant, his mentee, being groomed for ministry. Every, every great leader needs a great mentor. Elijah and Elisha. Let's begin in verse 16. And God spoke to Elijah the prophet and said, Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha. Now notice that phrase, anoint Elisha. Highlight that in your Bible. Remember that phrase, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. You see, God has already out ahead of you preparing the way for your call. He is already setting up the circumstances, calling the people, opening the door. While you think nothing is happening, God is already setting the stage. How often do we quit before the battle is over because we think that we have already lost? How often do we quit before the answer comes and it's right around the corner? God is already out ahead of you arranging the circumstances for your destiny. But you will have to walk into it. You see, God is the author of the supernatural, and he gave it a clear division of responsibility. He takes care of the super, but you have to take care of the natural. So often we want God to do the super and the natural. God, I'll sit here while you get it done. And God will say, well, I'll sit here until you come and help. He does the super. You have to do the natural. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat. Anoint Elisha. Anoint Elisha. Elisha did not hear that. He didn't know it was happening. He was busy with other things. But God was already out arranging his destiny. Anoint Elisha. Here's the first principle that I want to unpack with you tonight. Principle number one. 
God's assignment for your life will come through the hands of another person. It'll be out of your control. It'll be out of your ability and out of the realm of possibility for you. If you think about the life of Christ, his destiny was set from before the foundation of the earth, but had not Mary been obedient to the heavenly call, had not John the Baptist been obedient to the heavenly call, Mary gave birth, John the Baptist introduced him. Think of that. The Son of God drew his credibility from a man named John. His first disciples, Jesus' first disciples, came from John's staff. His public baptism happened at the hand of John. He said that there's coming one mightier than I, whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to untie. John pointed toward Christ. If Jesus' ministry was validated by another person, what makes you and I think we'll escape that? God's assignment for your life will come through the hands of another person. An Old Testament example, I know you guys have been teaching through the Old Testament. David, and David's called to be king. He won the battle against the giant, caught the eye of Saul, was brought into the throne room, acknowledged as a great warrior until Saul turned jealous and tried to have him killed. David never lifted a hand against him, but it was the king's son, the rightful heir, the heir apparent that put his hand on David and said, this crown belongs to you. David never lifted his hand to take the crown. He resorted to living in a cave to avoid conflict with the king. How often do we, when we have spiritual leaders that we think may be a little out of bounds or overboard or not quite right, maybe they're a Saul, and we decide to strike out on our own, be careful that you judge your leader as a Saul when he may be a David. You see, you see God never tells if the king is a Saul or if he's a David. He never tells. Because either one can prepare you for your kingdom. Remember, even when Saul wandered into the cave where David slept, and David could have taken his life that night, and rightfully so, and been justified in doing it. He did not. He took out his knife, and he cut off part of Saul's garment and laid it on his chest so that when he woke up, he would know that David was still true to the call. How often do we take the knife into our own hands? And in the process, we lose our destiny. Verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha. Your Elijah's coming to look for you. You don't have to go looking for him. John the Baptist will find you. Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. We have that capitalized in the scripture there. I want you to say it with me. 
plowing a field. Everybody, like you really mean it. Plowing a field. So what was Elisha doing while Elijah was coming to find him? He was plowing a field. He was plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field. He was one of a lot of people working on the farm that day. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're lost in the crowd. Sometimes you're going to feel like you've been passed over. You're going to know that the call of God is on your life. You're going to know that his anointing is upon you. But you're hidden behind a team of oxen, surrounded by a bunch of other oxen. Elisha was plowing the field. There were 12 teams there. And Elisha was plowing the 12th team. So not only was he in the crowd, he was the last one in the crowd. There was no way that God could have possibly meant for that to happen. Elijah came into the field. He went over to Elisha and threw his cloak across his shoulders, then walked away. Principle number two that I want you to apply to your call. You'll have to be productive wherever you are. If you are not producing in the field behind the 12th group of oxen, you'll never find your destiny. Do you know David wrote most of the book of Psalms as a shepherd boy sitting on the hills of his father's ranch? Unknown and unnoticed, he wrote most of the book of Psalms when he was an unknown shepherd. Paul got the revelation for what became the New Testament while he was in exile for 14 years, waiting for his ministry to start. He wrote his final book while he was in prison, awaiting execution. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd be busy writing a book waiting for my execution to show up. He wrote the last book. He was all in to the last moment. Elijah was productive. He was plowing the field. If you're not plowing the field when your Elijah comes, he won't even stop on your farm. He won't even stop. I don't know if there's a, a, um, a job that would be considered lower on the totem pole than this one. He was out doing the most menial of all tasks. If you're not willing to come early and stay late, and if you're not willing to be unnoticed and ignored, if you're not willing to do the thankless task that nobody else wants to do, if you're not willing to do it for Jesus and not for the glory, then you'll probably never make it in your destiny. For when you can find joy in the smallest of jobs and you can find fulfillment because it's the act of serving Jesus by serving his people that brings you fulfillment, until you get to that point, you're probably not ready for your destiny. When I came home from Bible college, Pastor Philip, um, I went back to the local church where I was serving. And, you know, when you come right out of the Bible school, you know so much. Had it going on. I thought I was going to get called in by the pastor. Doug, we need you to have you on staff, man. 
You should be preaching next Sunday. Uh, so arrogant, so full of myself. You know, God has a great way with dealing with arrogant people. You know what he does? He crushes them. He grinds them into fine powder. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Exalt yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will crush you like a tiny bug. And both of those equations are born out of his love. If you've humbled yourself before the Lord and taken the smallest job, expect fully that your Elijah will come. If you've exalted yourself into a place that's not yours, that was not granted to you by another hand, your crushing will come. And they're both born out of the love of God. First day back, my pastor called me into the office, and we had a growing church. It was a great church. I loved our church. Loved, adored it. I'd hoped he'd ask me to preach next Sunday or maybe at least, you know, uh, do the announcements. Doug, welcome home. Got a job for you. What is it, Pastor? I want you to build a greeter's team. And I want you to be the head greeter. And Pastor Philip, I immediately said, yes, sir, I'll do that. But honestly, I was dejected. That time I was selling insurance for a living. I was plowing the field. I wasn't a very good insurance salesman. Some people are called to sell insurance. I wasn't. But I did it rather poorly. So the next week, I showed up and my wife and I agreed it. And for the next 12 months, every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning for 12 months, I was the head greeter. 18 months went by. 18 months. I greeted every Sunday. I built a team of about a dozen people. And it became my ministry. I, by the end of those 18 months, absolutely adored greeting. You know that verse in the Bible which says that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? Brother Janway used to say, I don't know if you remember Brother Janway, he used to say, uh, I always wanted to be a gatekeeper on the walls of Jerusalem, but I never expected that I would be assigned to the dung gate. You know, the walls of Jerusalem, there was a dung gate and there was a keeper. Be careful how you pray because God may answer your prayers. By the end of the 18th month, man, I was thrilled. Do you know to this day, to this day, last Sunday I didn't preach at our church. You know what I did all day? I greeted. Because I still love it. In fact, if I could get paid to greet, if they would like pay me a salary to be the head greeter, I would be the head greeter in journey. Let somebody else do the menial task of preaching. I want to greet, man. That's where it's at, y'all. That's the best job in the whole place. And it probably is just because that's where I met my crushing. That's where I gave it all. If you're not productive where you are, you'll never be productive where you're going. Verse 20, 
Elisha left the oxen standing there. Oh, man, when you get the call, you drop everything. Oh, yeah, whoo, hey, here it comes. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first let me go. Now, I've highlighted that for you. I want you to see that. He asked permission. First, before I follow you and become your mentee, let me go take care of some business. I want to kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I will come back to you. Elijah replied, go on back. But think about what I've done to you. Here's principle number three. Elisha displayed it perfectly. Here's the third principle. You'll have to embrace the process. The call of God in finding your destiny is a long, painful process. It doesn't happen in a day or a week or a year. It takes about one lifetime. You want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus? It takes about one lifetime. Want to discover your destiny? Want to find my why you are here, want to give your life away to a greater cause, want to, want to know God's purpose and plan for your life, oh, you will. But it'll be a process, a slow, painful, expensive process that most people are unwilling to pay because most people want something that is fast, hot, and cheap. We live in America, the the land of the two-minute drive-through. We want our food so fast, we want you to pass it out the window. I don't even have time to park and come in. But as I pass by, throw it to me. And it better be fast, hot, and cheap, or I will come inside and tell you off. Now, while I was waiting for my ministry, I managed a fast food restaurant for a while. I got told off by a lot of angry customers whose food wasn't fast, hot, or cheap, or none of the above. But you see, if you want something great, it's a slow, painful, expensive process. There is no shortcut to being all in. If you want me, Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. At that time, many of his followers left. That's too hard of a saying. I'm not into this cannibalism stuff. Thanks anyway, Jesus. It is one of the two ordinances of the church. We have two, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the second one recounts that time in Jesus' ministry where he said, if you want to follow me, eat my body, drink my blood. Every time we do that, we are recommitting ourselves to go all in. It reminds us, it reminds us that following Jesus is a slow Expensive, painful process. It's a price that you'll be required to pay over and over and over again with your life.
But in the process, value is exchanged. Now, I want you to get this. In that process, you're going to be invited into an exclusive club. What some people call the school of the Spirit. That when you connect with Jesus on that supernatural level, the Spirit of God is going to open your eyes to things that other people don't see. You're going to know in your heart things that other people don't know. You're going to go to places that you can't even put in words. Paul said it's being transformed from glory to glory, from grace to grace. Paul said, I was caught up in what I think is the third heaven, not even sure. It was a place that I can't even put words to. But you'll have a glimpse of glory. Remember when Moses was on the mount and God said, I'm going to give you a, a momentary glimpse. And he put his hand over Moses in the cliff of the rock. And God passed by only his hinder parts. And I don't know what the hinder parts of God is. But Moses caught a glimpse and when he came down, his face was glowing. And he wore that veil because his face was so bright. You'll see and know and be part of things that you'll never even be able to put into words. And when you tell people, they'll think you're crazy. Like, yeah, well, really? No. Why would a person devote their life to farming the 12th set of oxen unless they had an encounter with the maker of the oxen? You know what I'm talking about? Why do people devote their life to menial tasks that seems to, you know, go against all common since, when I was a freshman in Bible college, I got on an elevator one time to go to chapel. Now, I'm from a farm town. I didn't get my first pair of shoes until I went to first grade. My dad never made more than $10 an hour his whole life. We were poor. We were, I didn't know we were poor until I, until I got old enough to see that my friends had, like, cars and money and stuff. This is a truth. I mean, here's a story within a story. When I was in the ninth grade, my best friend got a car. Now, this is the country. Ninth graders should not have cars. Let me just go ahead and just put that out there. He, had a, he got a new car. And he came to my house. Well, he wanted to come to my house, but I didn't want him to see it because we lived in a little, little tiny farmhouse. It was kind of dumpy. I didn't want him to see it. I was kind of embarrassed. By then, I was aware of how poor we were and how rich he was. So I always made up an excuse. You can't take me home. You don't come to my house. I didn't want to tell him where I live. One day... I got in the car, and he said, Doug, I'm taking you home. He started driving. So he forced me to tell him where I lived. And Pastor Philip, I just, everything in me hated for this, this snotty rich kid to take me home. He's my best friend up until that point. But I secretly hated him because, you know. So we drove down my little gravel road. He pulled in front of my house. And my house was probably at 900 square feet. It was a little wood farmhouse, kind of leaning to one side. It was kind of dumpy. You know, paint was cracking. And. He lived in a two-story brick home and drove a new car. He pulled up my house, and he saw it for the first time. He looked at me. He looked at my house. He looked at me again, and this is, what he, this is an exact quote. He said, damn. Can I say damn at church? Is that okay? I should have cleared that ahead of time, probably. Sorry. Dang. 
And I said, damn. You want to try living in that thing, man? <laughs> you think it's hard to look at? She's trying to live it in there. I went to Bible college and, you know, it, it was a struggle to go, man. I worked two jobs and I was trying to pay my way to go to school. My parents had no money. So I got on, a, I got on an elevator to go to chapel. And I went down to the first floor to go into the auditorium. But on the second floor, as I was waiting for the door to close, an old man got on the elevator with me, Pastor. He was probably 60 or 65, I really don't know. And I thought he was the groundskeeper because he looked like somebody that would be in my neighborhood. You know, he was wearing kind of wrinkled clothes, and he had on kind of scuffed-up shoes, and he needed a manicure, and, you know, his teeth were kind of gnarled. And I'm thinking, he must be the groundskeeper. or must be, a, you know, somebody maybe looking for him. I didn't know who he was. He turned to me, and he said, hello, son. And I said, hey, how you doing? And we talked. And we talked to the elevator, reached the first floor, across the lobby, out the door, across campus to the auditorium. We talked maybe for five minutes. He never told me his name. I didn't know who he was. I went to the chapel that morning, and there was a 1,000 students at chapel that morning. And I got on the front row. Worship finished. The chancellor got up to introduce the speaker today. We're very honored today to have our guest speaker all the way from, from India. And the little old man that rolled on the elevator with me and talked to me across the campus stood up at the microphone to speak. He was a missionary that founded uh, what became known as One Child Matters. He preached that day. He told me about his call to ministry that he devoted his whole life to caring for the poor in India. Mark Buntain lived and died on the mission field in India, picking up children out of the gutters, bringing them to his home, feeding and nursing them back to health. He did it for one child at a time, one day at a time. By the time he went to his reward, he'd built a church and a hospital and a school and a legacy. Today, Mark Buntain's ministry feeds 40,000 children a day. 40,000. 40,000. When he started his ministry, he was feeding one a day out of his own pocket. I must tell you, that moment I sat there in the chapel, I was stunned. Never forgot that moment that this seemingly old man who had no impact in the world was the guy that was presenting the story, and it challenged me to my core. He embraced the process. Last verse, and we're going to wrap this up. Somebody can come and play the keyboard for me. Verse 21, and we're going to wrap this up. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. That's an odd response for a guy that just found his destiny. He returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. Then he used the wood from his plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Had a barbecue. Fed the whole town. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now here is the here's the point. When he was uh, clearly 
assigned his calling, he made a purposeful decision to burn the bridges to risk it all and to put his very livelihood on the line. Pastor Philip, he went all in. There was no going back. He burned the plow. He burned the plow. He slaughtered his oxen and he fed everybody in sight. There was no going back. Are you hedging your bets? Are you playing it safe? Are you keeping some back for yourself? Oh, you can. God's graceful. You can keep it all if you want it. But why would you keep what you cannot have when you can exchange it for something you can never afford? Why do we cling to rags when he's offering to trade us for riches? Here's principle number four. To find your destiny, to follow your call, you will have to go all in. There's no shortcut. There's no safe bet. There are no guarantees. For the last 2,000 years, since the first martyr, Stephen, gave his life for the sake of the call. History is filled with names that are forgotten. Earth is stained with the blood of men and women that you and I will never know. Only heaven and eternity will reveal the true price of what it cost to fulfill the Great Commission. Only a few names are known. Only a few statues are built. The great heroes, by and large, go unsung unnoticed and unknown. But I'll tell you what, the Bible says that Jesus wrote their name down in a book, gathered their tears, you may never win an Academy Award, you may never win a Grammy or an ACM or a People's Choice or a Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award. You may never win an award. But if your name gets in the book, (laughs) if your name is in the book of life, that's the only one that really matters. Are you all in?